What do you see when you look into the face of your neighbor? Do you see a stranger? A friend? A foreigner? Or a refugee? Do you see someone to avoid? Someone to hide from? Do you see someone to hate or someone to love? Can you see yourself in their face? Do you see the face of Jesus? Today we start a new series, and we're calling it Dinner with Jesus. And no, you don't have to bring anything to this dinner. Uh, some people are wanting to bring water. I think that's so that he turns it into wine. Is that how it goes? Yeah, I thought so, Ron. So, but that's not the point. We're going to actually simply be uh, um, able to watch Jesus eat. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing maybe to some of you, but that's the goal is to observe Jesus at the table with a number of different people. And the reason that we're doing this, at least the reason I'm doing it, is because I have a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, I want to know what Jesus reveals about himself as he sits at the table with other people. Do you, do you find that happens when you sit down with someone for a meal and you begin to share stories and over the course of the dinner, you learn all kinds of things about the other person? It's an opportunity to reveal ourselves to one another, and Jesus very intentionally reveals something about himself while he eats, and we're going to find that out together. But the second big question I have is, what do we learn about loving our neighbor from these mealtime stories? We talk about that a lot, don't we? Sort of the prime directive for each and every one of us is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength but also to love our neighbor as ourself. And we say that again and again in Samuel's sermons and Eric's sermons, Linda's preaching, everybody's preaching. We're, we're talking about loving our neighbor as ourself. But sometimes that idea of neighbor is some sort of um, mythical creature out there somewhere. And we agree, we give consent that when we find that mythical creature, we will love it with all our heart, right? Uh, but, but what if our neighbor is actually our neighbor? And he's a little bit odd, and he smells funny. <clears throat> Not describing anyone in particular, but, but um, what if it's our actual neighbor? What does it mean to love our neighbor? So that's one of the questions that I'm asking, and I'd like us to learn together as we go through this. So we're going to observe Jesus at the table. We're going to find out what he reveals about himself, and hopefully discover what it means to love our neighbor in the process. So let's start with the first story in Luke's gospel. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 5 and verses 27 to 32. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his ta tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. 
But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? I love the translation here because it gets that sense of, of disdain, right? Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I've come to the conclusion that at least in the movies, prisons and high schools are very similar. Some of the, some of the students here are like, yes, I've never been to prison, but I know what high school is like. But they're, they're similar in a particular way. And they're similar because of the cafeteria. Think, think for a moment of a, a prison movie or a high school movie and the cafeteria scene. Do you have that in your mind? Because that's what we find in common between those two places. Both in prison and in high school, you don't go to the cafeteria for nutrition. I hope you don't go there for nutrition because you might not find it. Instead, you go to the cafeteria, at least in the movies, for power and influence, right? If you're new, if you're new in, in prison, this is just a hot tip in case you're going anytime soon. But if you're new in prison or new in high school and you have a cafeteria and you're going there, you've got a bit of a crisis on your hand. Your first time there, you have to choose wisely. What do you have to choose? Nothing to do with the food. What do you have to choose? Where you're going to sit. Because where you sit determines your identity. Where you sit determines where you're at in the pecking order, in the power structure, right? And so who you associate suddenly becomes your identity. You are marked. And so you have to choose wisely where you sit in the cafeteria. Well, actually, it's not just the cafeteria that sets those kind of boundaries. Uh, anthropologists will tell us that in all cultures, meal times also serve as boundary markers. They tell us who's in, who's out, who's invited, who's not invited, who belongs, who doesn't belong. That happens at meal times, and some people would say in all cultures, it transcends culture and time. It certainly was present in the time of Jesus, and we find that uh, in our story today. The question is, with whom can I eat? Where's my peeps? Where can I sit at the table? Where's my identity, right? As I sit at the table, because these are boundary markers that say something about our identity. They inform and communicate our sense of identity to others. And they mark the boundaries between different levels of intimacy and acceptance. To eat at someone's table says something about your willingness to accept that person. And that's true then, as it is now. I remember a number of years ago, we were serving a church in Richmond, BC, that some people know about, and it has the same initials, BBC, it's a common thing, but this was Broadmoor Baptist Church, and it was shortly after 9-11, and uh, we were a church that was fairly close to the airport, and we had a lot of stranded passengers after September 11th and when the Twin Towers came down. And then after that, months after that, we saw something happening in our city especially in our schools. We saw an uptick in uh, um, racism in our school systems, especially against Muslim people. 
And so we began to work on a project with another organization, and uh, the project was called the, the Imam and the Pastor, and it was a story that came out of Nigeria. And it was a story about a Muslim Imam and a Pentecostal pastor, and how they used to have their own militia groups, if you can believe it, and how they came to peace and to work together with one another. And so we, we worked on this story. But as part of that, we wanted to invite some of the other communities to the table together. Not necessarily to convert them forcefully, but to say, at the very least, we should not hate one another, right? At the very least, we should not be killing one another. At the very least, we should be neighbors and love one another, at the very least. And so there was this moment where the organizer of the film that we helped to produce brought some of the, the, uh, the key players together. So it sounded like a bad joke, or the start of a bad joke. A pastor, an imam, and a rabbi walk into a restaurant. But that's what happened. And we sat down together to eat together, to talk about how could we bring our communities together to reduce violence, to reduce racism, and to work together for peace. And the organizer of the event said, oh, this is a really historic event. Isn't it amazing? And the imam said, no, I think we're just hungry. <laughs> but it's true. Food brings us together because it reminds us that our most basic level, we are hungry. We need to eat. And so we find this, but often meals are used then as boundary markers. We have a basic need, but we want to eat only with our own people. And so that's something that's happening in this story as we work through it. Well, Robert Karras, um, commentator, he says this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus eats a lot of food, and you'll realize that if you read through Luke's gospel, and hopefully we'll do that over the course of this series. Well, even in Matthew chapter 11, we read, Jesus says this about himself, the Son of Man, which is a phrase Jesus used when he talks about himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You see, the mission of Jesus is summed up in this. So not, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But his strategy, in part, seems to be summed up in this phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Isn't that an interesting mission strategy? As we think about all of our mission strategies that we might have, this is the one, at least one of them, that Jesus employed, eating and drinking. And because of that, he earned a certain reputation. In Matthew chapter 11, we read this as well, that Jesus, it says of him, he's a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now, that isn't to say that Jesus was actually a glutton and a drunk, right? That's his detractors calling him that. But he got this reputation because he was willing to eat. He was willing to sit at the table. He was eating and drinking and that was part of his mission engagement. So Jesus and the religious leaders knew something together in common. They knew that every meal, and think about this, every meal is a picture, a reminder, a pointer to the great banquet of the feast of the kingdom of God. Every meal was a pointer toward that. And so the problem wasn't the party. The problem wasn't the meal. The Pharisees knew that God's kingdom was going to be a party. The objection was with the guest list, right? That's the objection they have. They had no problem, really, that Jesus was eating and drinking. They had the problem with the guest list. 
who was there. To associate with tax collectors and sinners was considered sinful behavior in itself by the Jewish religious leaders. The religious uh, tradition stated this, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to Torah. That's interesting, right? So even if, if your intentions are good, Jesus, even if your intention is to share the truth about the scriptures, you still should not go to the dinner with sinners. That very act is sinful. Don't associate with them, even to bring them to the truth. That's what was at play in the Pharisee's mind. So why does Jesus make a point of eating and drinking with sinners? What does he reveal about himself? And what does he teach us about loving our neighbors? Well, in the story we read, Jesus eats at the table of who? Levi. And what is Levi? He's a tax collector. We hate him already, don't we? He is a tax collector. And he's known as Levi in Mark and in Luke's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, he's known as Matthew. And I've got an idea of why that might be, but I'm going to share that at the end. So stay with me as we go through it. But for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to refer to him as Matthew. And Matthew is known as a tax collector. Now, to understand why it was so bad that Jesus went to Matthew's house, I have to fill us in a little bit on the tax system of Roman law. And this sounds really boring, but it's going to get exciting. At the very least, it will make you feel better about your taxes, I hope. So the tax system, the Roman tax system, was open to abuse for a number of different reasons. Romans at the time occupied Palestine, but what they did is they farmed out taxes to local men who would bid. They would actually bid to have the right to collect these taxes. So you had to go in a bidding war in order to be a tax collector. Uh, because what the Romans did is they would assess a certain region and they would say, we want this amount of money from this region. And then that was handed over to the local tax collector to collect it. But once he collected the magical number, everything else was his. He was allowed to keep everything else. Um, so as long as the buyer, as long as this tax collector handed over the right amount of money, he could keep everything else. Kind of a good deal, if you think about it. And so what did he do? He worked to extract extra funds from the people, not only on behalf of Rome, but to fill his own pockets. And back then, of course, there's no way to make public all of the tax fees and tax laws. There's no internet, there's no newspapers, there's, there's no way to communicate this effectively with everyone. So the common person, the common person probably did not know what the actual fees were that they were supposed to pay. And there were two types of taxes. And this is important. We'll get to why in a second. First of all, there were the stated government taxes, the taxes that you just had to pay, and there were set fees around that, even if you didn't know what those fees were. For instance, there was a poll tax. In other words, all men ages 14 to 65, and all women ages 12 to 65, that's interesting, um, had to pay a tax simply for the privilege of existing. That's a poll tax. If you have a head, you pay a tax if you're in that age group. 
right? A lot of people didn't make it anywhere near 65. So uh, that age group all paid a tax simply for the pleasure of existing. Years ago, some of you might remember this, a lady by the name of Margaret Thatcher, she introduced a poll tax, but decided to test it out on the people of Scotland. Well, she happened to decide to test it out while I was living in Scotland. I had a head, but I had no money. <laughs> and so I couldn't pay the tax. And I actually still have the note somewhere from the sheriff's office saying, you will go to prison. See, I almost got to the prison cafeteria. You will go to prison unless you pay the tax. You have a head, pay a tax. Thankfully, she introduced it to England. They revolted and there was riots in the street and she rescinded the poll tax. That's the poll tax. She was inspired by Rome, I guess. The Iron Lady was. So that's one type of tax, but that's not all. There's also the ground tax. This is gonna to start to sound very familiar. Ground tax, which was considered one-tenth of all the grain that you grew, if you were growing grain, and one-fifth of all wine and oil. But not only that, there was also the income tax. And the income tax was 1% of a man's income, I wish, right? But there was income tax. So there's layers of these standard taxes that Matthew would have been collecting. The poll tax, the ground tax, the income tax. But he didn't make a lot of money off these because they were set fees. But still, he was collecting it for the oppressors, for the people that were oppressing uh, the common people in Palestine. Where he made his money, though, were through the special duties, the special taxes. So there was a tax payable for using the main roads or the harbors or the markets. So when we read in our passage that they came to, to Matthew, to Levi, sitting in his tax booth, he might have been at an intersection of the road and charging like they used to do for the Coquihalla Highway. Remember that? If anybody drove up there, they were collecting a particular tax. Well, he might have been collecting then. There was also a tax payable per cart depending on the number of wheels on your cart, right? That was another tax. And not only that, depending on what animal you used, you paid a certain tax. And then you paid tax on certain articles that you purchased. And then you paid import and export duties. Do you feel a little bit better about your tax system now? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe you're like, hey, I see where it came from. But all of these taxes, Matthew would have collected. And it's these special taxes where he could really make his money. This is what William Barclay said about this system. A tax collector could bid a man stop on the road and unpack his bundles and charge him well nigh what he liked. If a man could not pay, sometimes the tax collector would offer to lend him money at an exorbitant rate of interest and so get him further into his clutches. Do you see how people did not like tax collectors? These guys were mean and out for their own, um, own interests. So why is all this info relevant to us? Well, here's the point I want to make. Matthew wasn't a tax collector by accident. He didn't go, oh, I've got no other job. They're forcing me to collect taxes. No, Matthew wanted this job. He had an ambition to make a bunch of money. He saw an opportunity. He bid on this and he got the role. He wanted to be here. This was willful and intentional, what Matthew was doing. This wasn't something that was beyond his control. Matthew saw an opportunity to make bank. 
He joined in league with the occupying colonial forces of Rome and intentionally exploited the common people for his own profit. That's Matthew. That's why we don't like him. He was a collaborator with the government powers who were exploiting the vulnerable people. It's no wonder that the Pharisees were upset. I mean, sometimes we give Pharisees a hard time, right? Um, we use, even use it to, in a derogatory way. We call someone a Pharisee. It means you're being legalistic. But I'm with the Pharisees here on this one. I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? Going to Matthew's house. Do you not know what he does for a living by choice? He's exploiting the vulnerable. Jesus, you are sending mixed signals. You say you're the Messiah. You say you've come to set the captive free. You say you're on the side of the poor and the vulnerable and the exploited. And you're going to the house of a tax collector who is the heart of the problem. And you're enjoying his meal? You know, all that food was paid for by the money from the common people. And it would have been an incredible banquet. Can you see how there would have been a bit of a crisis? And I can kind of understand why the Pharisees were so upset at Jesus. Bottom line is this. I think we would have been upset with Jesus too. At the very least, confused. Thinking that Jesus was preaching a message of compassion for the vulnerable, and then seeing Jesus identifying, sitting at the cafeteria table with the very problem with those who are oppressing, oppressing the poor. And not sitting there fasting or preaching or lecturing them, but eating and drinking with them, accepting their food. That's a problem. It's a problem because Jesus calls this tax collector to follow him and even accepted the invitation to his party. So what do we do with that? Well, let's make the matter even worse, shall we? Not only is Matthew at the table, but he invites a bunch of other people, right? That's what the passage tells us. Jesus is the guest of honor. He invites other tax collectors, and then the, the passage said, others. Some passages, other sinners. Who are the other sinners? Well, I think when we think about sinners in the Bible, we have a certain group of people in mind. I want to call them the lovable sinners, right? The lovable sinners are the, the rough and tumble kind of rebels that uh, suburbanites like to hang out with from time to time. Gives us a little bit of street cred. So we'd go downtown to visit Eric or someone down there, and we hang out with the skateboarders at Mills, and we, we, you know, we have some fun, we take some selfies, and then we post on Facebook just to show that we've got a little bit of edge still, Right? So there's these lovable sinners that we find. Uh, sometimes it's uh, people that are experiencing homelessness or maybe a sex worker, or an addict, or the guy with a weird illness that we like to say that we know in order to show that we're being compassionate to the sinners. So the marginalized, the poor, the vulnerable, the exploited. And we'll get to those in a few passages because Jesus eats with them too. But that's not who's at Matthew's table. Remember who Matthew is? He's not inviting a bunch of prostitutes to his table. He doesn't, he doesn't go in their circles. He's not after, at their cafeteria table. He, he's not inviting a bunch of exploited people. That would not go well. Matthew's not at that point yet. So who is he inviting to the table? Well, he's inviting a whole different class of so-called sinners. 
You see, the term sinners is a general term that covers people who are not allowed to act as judges or witnesses because of their so-called moral unreliability. They were considered morally unreliable for a variety of reasons. It could include sexual sin, or it could include those that were unclean for a variety of reasons. But there's also another group that were considered morally unreliable. And in the Talmud, which is a source of religious law, it lists these people like this. Dice players, pigeon racers, don't eat with the pigeon racers, especially after the race. Usurers, talk about that in a minute. Dealers and produce from the sabbatical year. I'm just reading out of the Talmud. Robbers, herdsmen, customs officials, and tax collectors, all sinners. These are the sinners we don't often think about. These are the sinners that I think were at Matthew's table. The people at Matthew's party were probably gamblers, loan sharks, customs officials, and tax men. That's the sinners. That's who was at Matthew's table. It's all the people that were making money by exploiting others. I don't think we saw at Matthew's table the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable. Instead, we see the very people who are preying on the vulnerable, the marginalized, the widow, and the stranger. This is not a table that we would feel comfortable sitting at. This is where we find Jesus. Well, why is Jesus at this table? We're told in the passage. Jesus is not there to simply have a party and enjoy some fine wine. I mean, he did that too, but that's not his reason. Why is he there? He's there to call these sinners to repentance. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus sits at your table, you are going to be challenged to change. Jesus is going to enjoy your company. He's going to enjoy the time together. He's going to be free in his exchange of ideas and thoughts. But then he calls us to repentance. And that's why he's at the table of these sinners, to call them to repentance. I think we have to be careful when we talk about having dinner with Jesus or Jesus eating at the table with sinners. Sometimes it comes off like Jesus is just this great party animal. Wouldn't it be fun if Jesus is always going from party to party? I think that's a misconception about what Jesus is actually doing. In eating and drinking with sinners, he definitely showed his love, his compassion, his acceptance, but he also shared the truth with them and called them to change. He calls them to repentance. And remember, when we hear the word repentance, I think we get kind of confused about it. If you've grown up uh, within evangelical circles in particular, I was often taught that repentance was necessary before we came to Jesus. In other words, we had to totally like turn from our sin and get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. That's at least what I got, the impression I got in my mind. And if we do that, if we turn from our sin and clean up, then why do we need Jesus? (laughs) Right? No, repentance is a little bit different in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And and the great story of repentance is the prodigal son. Remember, when the son comes to his senses, his mind changes about his father's house, and he returns home. That's repentance. That's what I want us to really get here. When Jesus calls these sinners to repentance, he's calling them to have a change of mind and heart about God, 
about the people that they're exploiting, about their role in the world, about whether or not they're accepted by God. He's calling them to have a change of mind about him, about his mission and purpose, and he's calling them to come home. That's the repentance that Jesus is calling uh, these people to. He's calling them to have a change of mind and come back home. Why? Because Jesus didn't see these people as criminals to be punished, but rather as wounded souls to be healed. That's so important. And it, it translates to a lot of the issues that we see in society because often we simply see people as maybe criminals that need to be punished instead of wounded souls that need healing. What did Jesus say as he sat at this table with the scum, <laughs> with these people who were exploiting others? He didn't see them as criminals to be punished. He saw them as wounded souls in need of a doctor. And the doctor was in the house. That's what Jesus, that's why he was at that table. That's why he was eating there. And that's what we have to get, I think, from this. Well, in the end, the tax collector Levi becomes the apostle Matthew. And actually, in Catholic tradition, the Feast of St. Matthew was just a few days ago on September 21st. I didn't know that until like last week. And so that's kind of appropriate that we're looking at Matthew today. But it's interesting that Mark and Luke called him Levi. And maybe that's because the word or the name Levi means joined together or connected. And perhaps they were trying to emphasize that Levi at the time was joined, was in league with the oppressors, with the Roman colonial powers. But when Matthew writes his gospel, he uses a preferred name, and his preferred name is Matthew. And the name Matthew means gift of God. Gift of God. Can you see the transformation? Levi has dinner with Jesus. Levi, the one that's joined with the opposing forces, he has dinner with Jesus, and now he sees himself as God's gift to bless others. And that gives us all hope. Having dinner with Jesus changed Matthew from being a taker, from being one joined in league with oppression to a gift from God intended to bless those around us. And if this transformation is possible for Matthew, then there's hope for you and me. There's hope for all of us. All of us who live in nations whose affluence often comes at the expense of the vulnerable in the world. I think we have to be honest about that. I don't think it's not to induce guilt or shame. It's just to be honest that so much of what we enjoy that we call blessings is actually at the expense of others and the expense of others around the world. And so in some sense, we are already at the table with Matthew, even though we don't want to acknowledge it because we live at the benefit of exploitation. But if Matthew can change so can we, because just as Jesus calls Matthew to repentance, he calls us to repentance as well. We can also shed our identities as takers, as those joined to oppression, and through God's grace, live to bless the nations around us, including our own neighbors. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Without Jesus, we'd still be in the dark, 
with regard to our own nature and with regard to yours. Thank you that Jesus came eating and drinking, that he was willing to sit at the table, willing to sit at our table. Father, we hear that call to have a change of heart and mind about who we are in this world and who you are. And we pray that you'd help us to come home, to be home, to find a place with you and to live from that place of honesty and truth. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.